This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Screen Talk. I'm Eric Cohn. I'm Ann Thompson. And we are really excited to have a special guest with this episode. Uh, Charles D. King is the founder of Macro, a multi-platform media company that represents uh, voices and, and perspectives of Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color. Uh, we've been following Charles' career for quite some time. He leads several Hollywood lives. He's a super producer, a veteran Hollywood agent, an entrepreneur. He's the uh, former partner and senior agent at WME Endeavor and was the first Black partner there. Uh, with Ryan Coogler and Shaka King. He was a part of the first uh, all-Black producing team to receive a Best Picture nomination for Judas and the Black Messiah in, in 2021. And as you could tell, I'm trying to get through all this stuff you've done because I know it's been a busy there's time. There's my bound and there's fences sorry and to bother sorry you. to bother you. So They Cloned Tyrone came out on, on Netflix this past week and, and ranked as the number one movie on there. And we definitely have questions for you about what all that means. But I think big picture is that, you know, on this podcast, we're always talking about kind of the confluence of art and industry and, and a lot of the work that you do seems to sit at the center of that. So so thanks, Charles, for for being here. Really excited to dig in. Thank you for having me. Thanks for uh, for having me on. And uh, uh, that was an amazing introduction. I don't know. I don't think I could have done that any better. <laughs> so you did very well with They Cloned Tyrone. Run us through how you came to go with this first time director, Joel Taylor. How did this happen? I, well, yeah, no, we did because, you know, this was a village. It was a true village that was behind this film. And and Macro was definitely like the studio, independent studio partner that delivered the film to Netflix. And Netflix was amazing partners in it. But there was a beautiful producer village all in lockstep together on making the film. And, you know, how we got involved with the project, I mean, it was a long journey. It's been well over over five years plus since we first met Joel and Tony, um, Joel Taylor and Tony Rittmeyer. Uh, shortly after they graduated from USC Film School, we developed a television project with them called Birth of Cool. And we knew how special their voices were. But not only, you know, we had two television scripts and we also produced and financed a short film that went alongside of that. And then they became very hot screenwriters and they wrote on, uh, they wrote on Creed 2 and they wrote... Um, the LeBron James, the story about LeBron James, you know, in his his whole kind of phenomenon as a you know kind of rising, amazing uh, young uh, basketball star to you know who he is today, um, that was on Peacock, and then they also were writers on Space Jam, and when they went out with Juet with with they cloned Tyrone as a pitch, because we were there and we knew how talented they were, and we were there at the very early stages of their careers as writers, we were very aggressive with the bid that we made on it as a pitch. And there were five or six other studios bidding on it. And um, we're a very artist-centric and friendly company. And we put a lot of creative controls and triggers in the deal that I don't think another studio would have done. Mm -hmm. And and we're very supportive of them. And, and I believe that one of the reasons why Joel said 
and Tony said, we want to go with Macros. They wanted to be at a company that would uh, culturally and creatively understand their vision and and protect them. While at the same time, we also had resources because we were we were going to finance it independently or co-finance it similar to what we've done with other projects like Judas. And so once we were finished with the script and we took it out, there were numerous partners who were interested, but Netflix one was the most aggressive. And we they we all felt like they were the right partner to make this film. And they certainly turned out to be great partners in this and the you know how supportive they were of the filmmaker and this whole filmmaking unit. And so from there, we all just locked arms together. And then, you know, we had the entire macro team. There were I think five different macro execs. Uh, and and partners that 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 worked on it at any given moment, but this was one where, as the CEO, I actually went down on you know in in production. I was embedded in it along with one of our young stars, Mark Wright. Um, we were down there for six months alongside the other producers, Stephen Love, and uh, and then Jamie Fox and his producing partner, uh, Tari Turner. We were all down there together um, through the through the height of the pandemic, making this movie and. And we were in an amazing, crazy production bubble. And um, it was a very long post process. But, you know, I think seeing this final product land on the service this weekend and have it be number one, it was just beyond gratifying. Yeah. It's it's a hell of a time for it to come out. And obviously, we're not live right now. So, you know, anything could happen. This this episode could come out and we could be talking about a strike going on and maybe we sound dated. We'll see. But I'm, I, I'm not holding out my hopes for that. So, so I want to ask you about this because it is kind of fascinating, you know, talking about like Netflix being a partner on a movie, ranking number one is very different from ranking number one at the box office. And a core element of this strike, among many other things that are being talked about, are you know, residuals, streaming residuals. People want to know transparency around this data and then get paid if something is successful. So I have to assume you, Joel, Jamie Foxx, all these different people seeing that kind of information that this movie is popular. You got to have some mixed feelings about it on some level, right? Knowing that you don't know how popular and you're nobody's getting paid after the fact, at least until the strike gets resolved in some way that changes those things. You do get paid ahead of the game. Yeah, no, I mean, everyone was well, very well compensated, you know, through the production of the film. And definitely, you know, now that the film has been delivered and it's on the platform. Um, I think at the end of the day, when we weighed out the, all the options for the film, we wanted the movie to reach as wide of an audience as possible. We had options to go with traditional theatrical distributors. Uh, and but in this case, we wanted the film to have all of the resources to really support this amazing vision that Joel had as a filmmaker. And in the case of in the in, in this case, Netflix was the most aggressive in terms of not wanting to cut corners and see it as a more of a micro budget film. And 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 frankly, they even enhanced the budget range that they'd originally committed to once Jamie Foxx came on board with John Boyega. And so the resources and tools that Joel had at his disposal as a first time filmmaker and that we had as a as a produ producer unit was actually I've got to give them credit for that. And the fact that also they kept us everyone safe and all of the the heightened steps and the additional steps that were taken around the production bubble at the height of the pandemic. And it was significant cost to this um, to make sure that no one died while we were making this movie and everyone stayed safe was an additional investment. And I believe it's, it's going to pay off handsomely. And so when I see it come out and we're 
we had a hundred screen commitment to it, which is what we negotiated, where it was going to mirror the largest commitment they had made to date when we had negotiated the deal many, many years ago. It was before Knives Out and you know some of the other, uh, you know, came out and mega they, deals. Yeah, we we were we it matched other deals that they'd made in terms of the widest release possible. I think uh, Roma was one of them, right? And we knew that 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 this was a film that would play well with audiences and theaters. There was a side of us where when you're reading the chatter and people are like, hey, guys, why isn't it in theaters? Where that could have been cool to have had more of that. But the thing is, we know that millions and millions of people have seen this on Netflix. And we will, of course, they always share the, the data, the 10-day data and the 28-day data with the core of the of the producer teams. And the, they, they may not publicize it, but they'll at least verbally let us know. And we've seen from our other projects, we know when projects have been on there, Mudbound was one of them, Raising Dion, uh, we had you know, Tiger Tail. When the data has been shared with us, it's been really very gratifying to know that these show, these films were seen by the world. And definitely Raising Dion was the number one kids and family show for Netflix globally. I think the number 10 show for them for the year for across any area. So having our content be distributed around the world is gratifying and it's good to know. I'd say that longer term with the issues that are clearly real and needed to be addressed that SAG and the WGA are fighting for, which we are in support of, that there's this calibration that needs to be had across the, you know, all the way around. And clearly there's market forces and pressures for uh, the tech companies and streaming platforms and traditional theatrical distributors that they have to keep in mind, you know, with the kind of some of the dip in the shareholder value. But I do believe that we'll get to the other side of this positively where where it's going to be a win-win for everyone. But these are these are issues and, and corrections that are needed. And it also impacts companies like Macro. I look at how much time and energy we spend on our projects and I want to, we need to also feel the same way that we're being compensated short and long-term as well for the amazing work that we're doing. So is there a, a solution for the residuals question? I mean, do you see I don't, how <laughs> they're going to figure that out? I mean, what would it's you right do now. if you were the mediator? Oh yeah, if I had a magic wand. If you were the mediator and you were the one in there, you know, talking to the two sides, I mean, what? because they're never going to be transparent. They're never going to let an outside firm do the statistics and the calibrations for them, right? As you know. I'm definitely not going to pontificate as though I have all the answers. I could say this. There's a barometer that, you tr that I try to use in every day in life and in business. And I think about what is fair. I literally will say to our attorneys, I'll say to our partners, is this deal fair? Is that fair? And I think that when they're sitting there and they, they know the compensation that the CEOs are getting and the senior members of the team, and they know how much they're providing back to their shareholders. And they also know the compensation. They see the deals from the actors and the writers. And they also see the deals of the more established studios and the independent studios like Macro. They know what those deals are. I want They should be sitting there thinking and realizing when they're talking to both sides, what is fair. So Charles, do you think that they that the people negotiating on behalf of the the studios, the AMPTP, have bungled their message? I'm not saying they bungled their message. I'm saying when when you guys said, "Look, 
what would I do if I were uh, mediating and I would really be diving in and really having people do have those honest questions about what is fair. I've been very moved by some of the personal stories that I've been hearing. I mean, we were already an artist-centric and supportive company, but hearing stories of executive producers of hit shows who have to drive Lyft to make their ends meet are, and, and actors who are on six, eight shows and they're, you know, close to being series regulars and, and they can, they're having to do the same kind of thing. Um, and they're going, you know, long periods of time in between work uh, and they're being held for long periods of time on projects while they're on hold waiting and see what happens. There's just, just there's some calibration that's just needed. Um, that period Agreed. As, as our market is adjusted and we're in a new reality of where things are going with primarily a streaming universe there needs to be some balance in, in terms of what is shared and data and analytics this there's, there's probably somewhere along where between 10 you know 10 day data and 28 day data shared verbally and and whether or not there's going to be some ability to negotiate deals and have adjustments made or bonuses be applied when certain metrics are hit. There's there's somewhere, and obviously I'm not privy to that because we're not in the AMTP and AMPTP, and I'm not personally a member of SAG or the WGA, um, but I do believe that there are very smart people in all of those organizations. And I know they have representatives that can come to that sort of common shared place of what is fair and what is going to be help for the healthiness of our entire industry that's needed. Because you were an agent, this is why I'm asking, because you were an agent and you know these people very well, would you imagine, because a lot of people are trying to come up with who the mediator would be. I think it should be you. I actually (laughs) think this is a great idea. Here to hear first. I really do. But but what what about Brian Lord? I don't mind being if there was like a consortium of people who were voices, I wouldn't mind. I, I would absolutely oh I'm always one who I can want to be as helpful as I possibly can be to our colleagues in our industry. Um, but uh I think that they're probably really smart people that this is what they do day to day, and that's their jobs to negotiate these deals. And um I'm gonna I'm going to stay optimistic that for the betterment of our entire industry, they will come to terms that that everyone will be happy with. I mean, the worst thing you ever want to do in any negotiation, and this is something I certainly learned as an agent, I never wanted to beat someone up so bad on a deal that they're going to be upset on the other side, like where you literally have to win every single point. You have to have parties feel good at the end of the day and then feel good about where it is. And that's what needs to happen here. Yeah, well, well, let let me ask you this before Anne gets the AMPTP on the phone and and on speaker and gets you into to the negotiating table. Uh, (laughs) Because what whatever happens, I know you're eager to get it resolved. Because in in March, Macro announced that you got over ninety million dollar investment from several PE firms, and you've been growing Macro incrementally over the years with these kinds of investments. So clearly, you have big plans for the future. Can you? Can you open the door a little bit? And because I, I was looking at this announcement and I understand their their ideas about, you know, the future of IP within macro that that seem like a like they could lead some really exciting directions. But I mean, what exactly is it that that you know this money is going towards as you see it right now? Well, the bulk of the capital that we raised was for the growth of the core business that we're already operating in, which is our content studios, 
Uh, it's film and television, both scripted and unscripted, as well as some of the work that we've been doing in the digital uh, digital arena podcast. We've had some short form content that have been developed into long form content, uh, like our show Hentified. Uh, so it's really, and then we're in, we have you know representation. This is one of the verticals and businesses we're in in our joint venture um, of with M eighty eight, and then we have um, our creative agency, which has really been about. It's building community and extending community. And we're now it's part of the brand of macro, but it's also now a creative agency that's been called upon by companies and studios within our industry to amplify and support marketing efforts for and rollout of, of other studios and companies projects. But it's also now they've been called upon to build programs and, and to implement um, activations as well as create strategy work for brands that are outside of the industry and, and branded content opportunities. And so this round will be about fortifying and expanding our offerings in the areas that we're already in, um, going deeper into them, more commercializing and broadening the slate from both our film and television studios, building out more of a team and a creative agency, extending and, cre and, and hiring other additional partners in the representation vertical. And then, you know, not only but domestically, but also where there's expansion opportunities from a global perspective. And then, you know, look, a, a, a an amount of our capital will be about investing in and thinking about growth growth initiatives um, that are complementary to the businesses that we're already operating in, whether it's using some of the capital we raised or accessing third party capital uh, to further scale the company you know, through current partners or or so many other potential partners that are interested in, in doing business with us. And so there's definitely um, a long-term vision and plan to scale the company. And what we're looking at within the chaos of what's happening in our industry is we're not taking our foot off the pedal in any way. There are so many things we can do around cultivating and developing and optioning IP now. We clearly can't develop with writers and nor should we, not when we're in the, not when there's a, a WGA strike that's happening, but we can right. still spend time in general meetings with filmmakers and and building bridges internationally and 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 looking at IP. And the other thing we're doing is spend a lot of time thinking about some of those growth initiatives, you know, planting seeds for three to five to 10 years out. And I'm I, I'll just say this, I couldn't be busier. And um and and same thing with all our colleagues. We're all still operating, you know. We're still operating from a place of strength so that when we come to the other side of of the labor uh, strikes, that we'll be ready. We'll be all systems go and be ready to jump in full steam ahead as opposed to sitting around in a doldrums because right. that's not, not your style. No. Well, let me ask you a quick follow up to that, which is we, we had John Sloss on this podcast like right before Sundance, and he said he would not advise to an investor to get into the feature film business. It was not 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 what he would say is right now a great growth business. Now this was pre-start strike, but mm -hmm. sort of I guess post-COVID, if that if that makes you know, early January, right? How do you feel about that kind of mentality that that you know getting into investing in movie businesses, you know, it's it's hard to get a lot of people who are just looking at the numbers to make them to make sense out of them, basically. I, I think there's been people that work in private equity. Uh, in these very large financial institutions, they're in the business of of making money. 
And there's a lot of private equity capital that came into invested in a number of really smart, independent studios and companies over the course of the last few years. And I would say that those parties are in the business of making money and they are smart and they're thoughtful about where they're investing. And I would say that John is also really smart. It's really how you're going to do it and where you're going to invest. You know, I wouldn't just blanketly invest in our in, in the film industry. Absolutely not. But there are certain companies and brands that are uniquely positioned and people. And I would I think their smart money would bet on them. If I were a private equity person, Jason Blum were out there raising capital, I'm sure <laughs> they would invest in Blumhouse and he's yeah. in the film industry. So, yeah, yeah. just like That's a, the horror genre like invest, is one like thing. Yeah. I mean, they're and the only other thing I would say is this diversification. A company like Macro isn't just in the film business. We're in film, we're in television, we're in representation, creative agency. There's, there's a portfolio. Yeah. And so I think that just like anyone who has a, a, a an investment portfolio, your 401k, I think very few people have all of their capital just in one area. So diversification matters. And so if you partner diversification with, with, um, with a smart thought out plan and a brand that's kind of wrapped around it, I think that there are going to be uniquely positioned people and independent companies and studios and thought leaders that will actually emerge even stronger on the other side of this. So you've been a pivotal figure involved in expanding representation for people of color across the industry, not only at Project Involve or Film Independent, but um, I know that you are a member of the Academy Yes. And I wondered what you thought of their expanded role uh, in the diversity requirements for Best Picture. I mean, some producers are not happy that they're being told, you know, what to do, um, right? Is it enough? Are they doing enough? Well, what, can you be specific about which expanded role of the Academy? Well, they're basically saying that that the uh, producers have to fulfill certain qualifications in order to be eligible for Best Picture, and in terms of their diversity and the makeup uh, of behind the scenes, there's all sorts of ways. You know, there's a list of, of like you, three different ways you can do. You it. have to do it in front of the camera, behind the camera, either in marketing or distribution. It's actually they've all decided most of the time that most people qualify. That it's very difficult not to qualify. Yeah. Um, I think you would find that um, the best content and, and the the most well-received work will have diversity. And um, the fact that it's more mandated um, to help increase the trajectory of what was needed in terms of change in our industry, I'm for it, period. And I think that even when Oscar So White happened, um, I looked at it like it's just a larger sim symbolic it's symbolic of larger issues within our industry. It was less about the Academy, to be honest with you. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Uh, and I do believe that the Academy has made a lot of strides. You know, there's still work to be done, but they have definitely made a lot of strides and um, and and have been very purposeful, it seems, from my perspective, of trying to broaden broaden the canvas. And, I, I, and I've been very impressed with their even their internship program. The, uh, you know, the Academy Gold, you know, interns that, that have come in through there each year, that many of whom have spent time at Macro, and they seem to be genuine um, with 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 a lot of that work. And, you know, I think it started with the, the leadership of who was there leading the cause. And, and it's obviously now continuing, but um, 
Well, they've lost some executives lately, and this has been going on around the the whole industry, people losing their jobs. There were people at the height of 2020 that genuinely, there were a lot of people that made proclamations and public statements to look good and to, to sound like they were actually looking to make change. And I think that there were some people that actually really care and were about it. And I think really what you're going to, what we're seeing is some of the shakeout from that as there's been market corrections, the, the the pressure that a lot of those executives, particularly those focused on actually change, trying to change that dynamic from within, if they don't have the buy-in at the top, or if it's just like literally like a, it's a stamp thing, those people are tired of being put in positions where they're not empowered to actually make the real change or they don't have the buy-in that they need. Or those executives are some of the first ones to be let go when they have to figure out how to like trim costs. And so many of the, and that's what we're seeing. And it'll be interesting to see who are the real, real people that actually see that their long-term value is going to come from having more uh, diversity and thought and the makeup of their teams and the makeup of their teams that are empowered and and can have real decision-making green light authority. Those are going to be the ones that are going to thrive going into the future, not the ones that are trying to go back in time. They'll, they'll die like the dinosaurs eventually. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up because you know, we we've seen the same reports that, that I'm sure you have about the departures of various black executives all across Hollywood and just in the last few weeks. And, um, and it's frustrating because you know, it's uh, we can tell, you know, based on the way that this is being discussed, that it's not one specific thing. It's it's uh, there's a lot of different forces going on here. Uh, but I know you've been working as a change agent like this since very early in your career. I've talked to people who have worked with you about the way in which you've, you've worked to sort of ingest this kind of talent, uh, you know, people of color in the industry who, who have been held up for a long period of time. So, I mean, what do you see as a path forward here in terms of, you know, helping to address this? Because it sounds like there's suddenly a lot of talent that's sort of floating around. I think the similar, like the Oscars, you know, the, the, the Academy has put certain parameters in place to, to be able to um, get under consideration for certain awards categories. When we see an alignment of the long-term profitability CEOs and their roles be tied to some of that change as well, I think you'll start to see, you know, similar to how when we had to have um, a market correction in terms of behavior of executives around uh, Me Too and Time's Up. And if they didn't correct, it would be problematic for them. I think as as, as we evolve, um, having some some financial tie to real change, <laughs> I think will matter or else it won't change. So you're on the board of the Sundance Film Festival. What do you think is the future of film festivals and that one and independent film? The challenges for production, distribution, exhibition. Is there a silver lining somewhere? I think like it's been great. I love being on this board of Sundance and you just think about the discovery not only the Sundance Institute, but it's also the labs, I'd say. Those training labs, man, and the, 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 the artists and talent that have been cultivated and supported through the organization, it's amazing. I was just telling one of our interns who's, who's here, who's applying for one of the Sundance labs, I was like, run, don't walk. Um, just how, in, just the, the beautiful work that's done there. I believe there's, there's always gonna be a place in our industry for the festivals. 
and and for the discovery of content and for new voices to be seen and i've seen the 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 widened range of of content that's being made independently and also getting accepted into and premiering at festivals i think is great i think the work that still needs to be done is these festivals and how they're viewed as a market uh sales market and is obviously impacted by the larger changes in economics of what's happening in our industry. So moments where the streaming platforms were extra, extra aggressive, like they needed to go buy, they couldn't make enough content. So they were going to go and acquire content from independent sources. And so they helped kind of fuel some of it, but but some of the sales and growth at festivals, part of what's been happening has been a challenging film market at some of these festivals over the course of the last year or so impacted by the larger um, pressures of these platforms it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out over time i also think that there should be some real thought around who goes to those festivals from those platforms and how those those acquisition executives are empowered there needs to be mm. a diverse range of folks oh that's true yeah. i have seen this from when i was an agent to to i'm seeing it now that certain titles there's every once in a while some of the more diverse movies that get into the festivals will kind of hit lightning. But a lot of times the most senior voices are not going to those films initially. And mm-hmm. they're selling further into this into the festival. I saw it when I was an agent and at WME, at WMA and E that Precious literally did not sell till like well past the festival was over in terms of where it got to the level that where it needed to be in terms of because it it took that long for the real decision makers. I saw it with Mudbound when I was back there with Macro and how long it took for it had to go, I call all the way up to Ted Sarandos because of the acquisition executives in between. So there's needs to be, I think more acquisition executives from diverse perspectives so that you're seeing a wider range of these projects that are being seen and actually um, getting acquired in the range of what people are actually financing and producing them for. There's some work that needs to be done. And, and I also know that from some of my friends who've been the highest levels of these festivals, there's a, very large number of the movies that are not finding distribution for quite some time afterwards. And so these are just larger market forces at play here that um, I'm not sure the answer, but I will say that, that that doesn't prevent the need for there to still be film studios. Maybe perhaps they're more like debut platforms, but you can't just rely on them being your, your, your film sales marketplace. Yeah, well, There's I mean, the other, the other, other ways you have you to mean, think about You mean it. film film festivals, right? Film festivals yeah. can't be the only way of places where you're going to be selling independent films. And, la- and launching filmmaking careers. I mean, it's it, one thing that was fast. I mean, for me, it's like uh, going to Sundance in the last, you know, almost 20 years. What I've noticed is is that it's always fascinating when you have this great talent who's like born at a festival and then they get snatched up by a studio movie because that really did start happening more and more, you know, with Marvel kind of taking off. And, you know, somebody like Ryan obviously was a real Ryan Coogler was a real maverick at sort of navigating the system and figuring out how to do that. But it's it's clearly really hard for a lot of people to take that leap and sometimes you know they really hit a wall and i'm curious what you make of that sort of process of you know the the indie farm system uh you know and and how to sort of improve 
the 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 sort of on ramp of sorts or or if that is something that makes sense for people to continue to do to become a part of this machine i mean we see some really interesting talent like i would have loved to have seen what terrence nance was going to do with space jam for example and yeah. and it was bummed to hear when that didn't come together and there's so many stories like that um, partly because so many filmmakers who become sundance sensations then you know get these kinds of opportunities they're not necessarily ripe for yeah, I think that um, it's similar to the pipeline of talent working by who get in, get access to studios or talent agencies. They come in as an assistant or they're, you know, they're in a training program. There's one thing about getting through the door and that's that, that's a big part of it. But the biggest part is the mentorship to stay in and continue to to thrive through it. And that's why even some of the programs for Sundance had a second time filmmaker initiative because they were seeing the data where their filmmakers were getting their films premiered. But then a lot of times they're having a hard time. It could be like five, six, 10 years of like longer between their first and second films. Yeah. So I think there really is something to that about the continued mentorship of folks once they've gotten their foot in the door and have made their first film to get into like their second film or like working in television until their feature, their feature career takes off and how to still make a living in their art form while they're working to get their next, their next project off the ground. And I think that, you know, smart people and systems will, will think about it. I know we are definitely doing that. And so I think about how many of our projects have been with first time filmmakers, but there's a fair number of them would actually with second time feature directors. And, and I think that they're really, that's a big, that that's something for folks to look at as well, to really solidify an artist's voice. And, uh, and part of, for us too, is we would love to be able to be in repeat business with artists whose work we we've loved when we've done their first movie. And, uh, and so I think hopefully other people will think similarly. And I think that the, what we're seeing is some of the training programs that each of the studios initiated have also been a part of cultivating voices that started in an independent film. And uh, hopefully that with all the reductions and things are happening, that we do not lose, that we don't lose that because I think those will be valuable with continuing to incubate and keep them in our, in the system. That's what's worrying me is with all the cutbacks and layoffs that these are the first programs that are being cut. It's real. It's it's which I think is it's almost like you're uh, it's harming the it's there was steps in the right direction and it's moving you backwards because ultimately continuing to double down and invest there is I think going to be part of the sea change and the newest, freshest voices that I think are gonna create more original content that's going to help the ecosystem thrive. Amen to that. But um, so uh, on a different note, uh, did you go to Oppenheimer or Barbie this weekend? I mean, it looks like people are getting excited about non-franchise filmmaking again. I, are they going to listen? Are the studios going to pay attention? I mean, I, I'll be honest with you this weekend. I was, I was, uh, watching tyrone over and over and over of course you were <laughs> but, but Gaming the system. With, friends, with, with friends and 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 enjoying my time with my family but i will absolutely go out and support because i have a lot of numerous friends that are in barbie i mean with Issa ray and america ferrera and um chris nolan all of his work is so amazing and and and, 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 and genius so we're definitely going to go out and support both of those films as well and i thought that it was a great healthy weekend for our entire industry you know and the the brilliant marketing campaign for barbie you know the you know all of nolan's movies always get excitement and and then frankly for our film to still do as well as it did on netflix when you had these two behemoths out in the marketplace shows that there's there is a real the marketplace when they have fresh thoughtful exciting content they will go watch it in theaters 
and they will watch them on streaming platforms. But if it's this kind of just programming, they, there's other ways where people will spend their time and energy in other platforms and other engage in other ways. And uh, so I do think that it was a a positive weekend and light and I, and hopefully message for our, for our industry. Well, we can't have you on this podcast without talking for a bit about Tyler Perry, uh, because he looms so large in so many different kinds of ways. And, and you played this critical role in getting him out there. I mean, you pioneered the 1090 deal for House of Pain on OWN, which if people don't know what that is. They should look it up. It's a really important piece of industry history. And you also helped get him his first studio deal as a filmmaker. So I guess what I, what I'd be curious about is, you know, now that he, you know, he's got this massive studio, sits at the center of Hollywood influence in a really specific kind of way. But, you know, a lot of these films and shows that he does don't get as respected by the wider Hollywood establishment as, say, Christopher Nolan or somebody else we might be talking about. So so what do you make of kind of the the I don't want to say disconnect, but the kind of complexity of the of the way that Tyler Perry is sort of seen within this industry? Tyler is one of the hardest working, most brilliant people out there in the marketplace. And he could care less about what those people are saying. He's got a, he's got his own studio. He owns his own library. He's, he's building an empire. <laughs> and, and if anything, they should be paying attention and, and taking notes. And I think smart people are in terms of how he bet on himself. You know, yeah. He, co- he, he built his own audience day by day, brick by brick, studio, city by city with his plays. And then he went out there and he bet on himself when he financed his first movie. And, and he had smart agents and lawyers who negotiated deals, but it was, it was on behalf of a vision that he had. And if anything, I would say um, this, the industry for it's sad for them to not actually think about, you know, and learn from some of the moves that he's made and continues to make. I think that there are smart people that are that have that have looked at that. And uh, and then those that aren't, once again, they'll be the people that be in the dinosaur sort of like just fizzling out. <laughs> right. so we've got to wrap this up. You've been so great. Um, I, anybody out there that you're excited about, you know, somebody new, somebody fresh, somebody that's oh sort of changing things up a bit. You're going to make me single people out. There's, I was watching Project yeah. Greenlight last night. You know, that was fun to see uh, those, to, those folks. I mean, once hey, once again, shout out to Issa and, and and her whole umbrella and her team and what they're doing. I just I love them. They Her company radio, they were like some of the music supervisors on music for, for Tyrone. And she also had Barbie out this weekend. So like <laughs> I, I would say I'm just excited all around about new voices, period. I'm definitely excited that the world is getting to see the voice of Joelle Taylor uh, and the brilliance that we saw five years ago. And now that the world can see Joelle and Tony, they're, you know, they're an amazing writing duel and Joelle directed it. But what's going to come from them after this is just in- incredible. And uh, And there were a lot of other artists that worked on this movie with them. Uh, that I think are going to come out with projects as well. Um, I'm not going to shout them all out right now because I don't want everyone in our town to go run to them before me. <laughs> they can, they, you know, but You're I can. You're ahead say, of the curve. <laughs> yeah, I got to stay ahead. I'll say just keep following us, and and then uh, you know, you know, and then we'll find things to collaborate on. <laughs> all right. Well, well thanks Charles, a lot. Thanks for doing this. 
thanks for taking our questions. We'll see you on the other side of the strike when you uh when you figure that out for us. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank guys. you very much.